Hey everybody, welcome back to the TeamCast. I'm Coleman Ruiz, the Director of Performance at the Mission Critical Team Institute. And the TeamCast is a show where Dr. Preston Klein and I and our guests discuss all things mission critical teams. MCTs are teams of four to 12 people, indigenously trained, that solve rapidly emergent, complex, adaptive problem sets, and who work in immersive environments of 300 seconds or less, where the consequence of failure is death or catastrophic loss. However narrow the definition of mission-critical teams, and whether you're on one or not, we aim to bring you the broadest range of topics and guests as possible. Thanks for being here, and once again, enjoy the TeamCast. Today's conversation is once again between me and Dr. Preston Klein, and today we discuss the 10 principles of learning to navigate uncertainty. In our conversation, we talk about the difference between safety and security and why the distinction matters. We talk about risk in general. We discuss owning the clock and quote-unquote judgment and decision-making in an uncertain environment. We talk about the concept of balancing risk to force and risk to mission and what it costs you. We talk about team fluidity, establishing a common language, team cohesion, and a thing called user guides. As a note, stay tuned for next week's episode with author Daniel Coyle on similar subjects. Dan Coyle wrote The Talent Code and The Culture Code, and after spending four years researching eight different types of elite teams. I asked Dan at the end of the interview what one thing he would do if we dropped him into a brand new team that he had never seen before and all the skills that he's learned in doing all the research that he's done, what one skill would he use if he was dropped into that team and had to cold start as a leader or a member of that team? As a reminder, please contact us at info at missioncti.com. That's info at missioncti.com. And once again, enjoy my conversation with Dr. Preston Klein on learning to navigate uncertainty. Great. So here's, if you're willing, Preston, here's where I'd like to start, which you don't even reference, but it's a story I've heard multiple times. And I think it's very impactful to this idea of what we think we know and what we don't know seeking on seeking certainty in places where there isn't any yep could you please tell the story about when you were a backcountry guide for at-risk youth and you had a you had a conversation after one of your you know students went through the program i think was either wounded or ended up being killed on the streets of an inner city where yep. they lived and you had a conversation with your boss who i believe was a former marine yep can you take us through that story please yeah, sure. And so I think this is the one that you're referring to. So after that first program in 89, we were out for 60 days and we came in and at the time I was I was pretty young and um, you know, still trying to save the world kind of stuff. And when we got back and James had gotten gotten home and gotten killed and I went into my boss and my boss is, is again, was Phil Costello. He died a few years ago, but he's an incredible mentor to me. He was a former Marine who left the Marines and started this program called Project Use, working with kids nobody else wanted in places no one else wanted to be, namely New Jersey. Um, 
And he, you know, he was that scrappy kind of like, we'll figure it out kind of a guy. And I walk in at the end of this course and the end of, you know, losing James. And I said to Phil, I said, Phil, like, here's the deal. Like these kids, they need social workers and psychologists and frameworks. They need all this stuff. And I'm not any of that. And he puts down his pen and he gets right from his desk and he sits down next to me and he goes, tell me more. And I explain the whole thing. And he was like, you're absolutely right. But here's the deal, Preston, you're you're framing the wrong problem. All of those things don't exist for these kids and we're not going to get them to exist. And so the choice is whether or not you're better than prison. Are you better than prison? And I was like, well, I'm better than prison. He's like, great, good talk. And I and I was like, well, hold on. He's like, not hold on, Preston. That's the world we live in. What you're describing is a perfect world and that would be awesome, but that's not the world we live in. What the world we live in is it's either you or prison. And I believe you can do a better job than prison. And so that's what we went and did. But what can you talk a little bit more about the moment or was that the moment or was there another moment where you realized that, uh, to use Chris Warner's quote, you were going to have to change your relationship with pain or yeah. change your relationship with uncertainty. Yeah, I mean, all of that, right? It's so when I remember being on Lake Tier of the Clouds, finding out about James, and this is the origin of Hudson River up in the Adirondacks. And I remember figuring out like, hey, some of these kids were going to go home and die. And I had to decide what I could impact and what I couldn't impact. And it was this idea of... Um, what I what did I know? What could I influence? And what I could influence was their decision making in sort of the last five minutes of an interaction, right? I couldn't interact with their life and their society and, you know, poverty and race, but I could help better train them for navigating that last five minutes or what hopefully wouldn't be the last five minutes, right? So they could zig a little better than they can zag. And it's in that, it's in that crux moments where people are turning a corner in the inner city and they're confronting you know, conflict, they're confronting um, adversaries. How can we help them better prepare for that five minutes? How can we better prepare for them to be able to navigate that, not from a place of fear, but from a place of intention? And in many ways, that's guided much of my research ever since. Yeah, so let's, for those, the five of us who will actually read the papers, me, you, and three of our friends, I want to go through a couple of these things, obviously, because that's the purpose of this particular episode uh, learning to navigate uncertainty and have you, uh, can you just press and take us through the first couple of ideas that you think are most important, whether, the, whether it's safety and security or the, the etymology of risk, um, just to get us kicked off here. Yeah, sure. So one of the things I will commonly ask teams is whether they feel a responsibility to keep their family safe and they're all not like, yes, of course. And then I'll let them know that safe, um, from the Latin salvis is one of English's oldest words, and it means free and secure from danger, harm, injury, and risk. And then the next question I'll ask them is give me a moment in time, any moment in time where you are free and secure from danger, harm, injury, risk. And it turns out no one is. And so this is what's this really, it's called the safety paradox, which is we want to both, as you have young boys, you want to grow them and challenge them and place them in adversity so they can sh- you can show them that they're greater than they thought they were. At the same time, you want to keep them safe. Well, you actually can't do both things. You have to choose one or the other. And so what you end up with is the idea of being secure. And that's why safe and secure is often coupled together because secure from the Latin securus means free and secure from anxiety and worry. And this is what I was referencing before, which is parents and teachers and 
legislators, we can all convince ourselves why we are secure when we're not. Um, we can read conspiracy theories and and what's called confirmation bias, seek the internet for things that confirm how we want to navigate the world, right? And so we can become secure when we're not. Um, and so that's sort of the idea of safe and secure. So what it, it let's let's so let's talk a little bit more about safe yeah. and secure. How how do we then, um, if we were doing the on Monday trick and we're not to that part of the team cast yet, but if we're talking about like what do we do on Monday? How do we, to use a quote here, how do we resolve this tension between the impossibility of safe and the yearning for secure? Where, where does one start? Yeah, it's intentionality, right? And so the this gets us into risk because the historical definition of risk, which was borrowed from finance, is the potential for loss. This is how most people understand risk. But I want you to think about your own life for a second. When you when you decide that you're going to move or take a new job or take any transition in your life, you're not making the decision based on what you might lose. That's just not how we navigate the world, right? It's what we might gain. The problem is we've been conditioned to start off with, well, what, what are the potential losses? All I'm asking people to do is adopt the 2009 International Standards definition of risk, which is the effect of uncertainties upon objectives. So it changes the conversation from what we might lose to what are the objectives and what are the uncertainties? Because if we start with a place of objectives, like you and I have many talked about many times, it's where we look is where we go. So we're looking at the openings, not the rocks. The rocks will sort themselves out. We know they're there, right? We have to be aware of them. I'm not, I'm not trying to be Pollyanna about this. We need to know there are rocks. There are rocks in the world. But if you look at the openings, you're more likely to hit them. And so this idea of what we can do, how we can sort of talk about ourselves and this tension between safe and secure is recognizing that there are objectives and there are uncertainties. And some of that is which only God can know, right? That's the old definition of certainty, that which only God can know. I think, you know, where I find myself landing on this at times when I reflect on this idea or every time you and I discuss it in a MCT course or whatever is... The, the next question that at least, you know, that I think of is, well, I might have the propensity to be fully intentional about my objectives, but even my objectives are too risky, right? So I'm intentional about my objectives, but that isn't necessarily helping me to navigate uncertainty because I'm picking way too risky of an objective. So this is where things get really convoluted and, and I'm hoping to express this in a way that everybody can understand. Um, if Let's say you and I are going to go on a bike ride, right? What we can do is we can plan a bunch of contingencies because we actually know all the variables in play. We know bikes and tires might blow. We might fall down and get injured, right? There's going to be car crossings. So we can practice and train for that. And in those kind of technical problem sets, those kind of problem sets where we can know all the variables, then you can take greater risks or you can assume greater risks because you can build a lot more contingencies. You can plan for them. You know what I mean? Now let's talk about something like the zombie apocalypse. You could contingency plan all day long. Most of them be wrong and half of them you wouldn't have thought of. So what we have to do instead is build the capacity among the team to innovate in the moment, right? Or if you're an individual, you need to have the capacity to resolve whatever shows up. At that point, you have to have a really sort of clear idea about how much uncertainty tolerance you're willing to take on. So how tolerant you are of the number of things you can't know. Um, and so 
this is the idea that when when young folks, this is a classic example, younger, your son might come to you and say, hey, dad, I'm going to backpack across the country, right? Or I'm going to like, I'm just going to disappear and go sailing around the world. Well, there's a tremendous number of uncertainties. We can train for a bunch of those, but the number of human factors alone are extreme. And so at that point, you have to start building capacity. Yeah. it's. L- let me share a couple ideas with, for any of our listeners who are the general audience and uh, haven't dealt with concepts like operational risk management matrices or this idea of risk to force versus risk to mission. As we think about navigating uncertainty and to use a more common term, like how far when we're dealing with uncertainty and risk, can any person or team be comfortable with like pushing the envelope? All right. Let me give you a, a couple, let me give you a couple of ideas and a couple of examples to put in your to put in your back pocket. So the Navy doesn't have, certainly doesn't have all the answers, but I come from the Navy, so I'll use our system, which is operational risk management system. And, and you you write this stuff down on paper and it's on an X and Y axis. And you're essentially balancing two concepts, likelihood of scenario, both good and bad, and severity of scenario, both good and bad. So here's an example of going on target if a direct action troop of any special operations or non-special operations sort is going on to a target. And in the pre-intelligence scenario, uh, you have pretty good evidence that there's one or two armed people on this target. And all the other conditions are pretty stable. Your way in and out, helicopters, the terrain is generally favorable. The situation doesn't seem that extreme to a fully armed you know, special operations troop or FBI SWAT or, or whatever you might be. So the, the likelihood that you're going to get into a skirmish is pretty high, but the terrain's favorable. Your way in and out is favorable. You have pretty good evidence. There's only, you know, two or three armed people on the target. So your likelihood again is, is very high that you're going to get in a skirmish, but your severity is fairly low. And so that's a low risk operation in Coleman's mind and in the troops that I dealt with Preston, that's a, that's a low risk operation, right? And then the second part to that calculation is this risk to force versus risk to mission. If you, if you have a, uh, let's take a different scenario. There are 16 armed people on that target. The terrain is not favorable and the way in and out sucks. Then your likelihood of a skirmish is extremely high and the severity of the eventualities on that target are also really shitty. And so that's a super high risk mission. And then we can take the next step and talk about how much risk are we willing to take to the force, to us, we're the force, to the people. How much risk are we willing to accept on us? Like, are we going to take, you know, a certain way in that is more dangerous to the troop, but more successful to executing the mission? If you accept more risk on yourself, most of the time you're creating a situation in where the mission is going to be more successful. If you over mitigate your behavior to protect the force, to protect us, you may sacrifice the mission. And a lot of times the easiest way to explain that is a troop or a you know SWAT team going into something. If you move really, really fast into a target, many times you're creating, not all the time, but many times you're creating a higher chance of success to the mission because you're getting there quick, but you're accepting a lot more risk to the people. 
because you're not deliberate about the way you move into the target, et cetera, et cetera. And so for all the listeners around this topic of risk and uncertainty, I just wanted to make sure we level set on this idea of like, uh, it, it, you could apply this to a, a free fall jump. You can apply this to camping with your family is that there's a likelihood that something's going to happen and there's a severity of, of if that thing happens and matching those two things up. And then there's the mitigation part. Do I accept more risk to me to make the mission more successful or do I accept more, more risk that the mission may or may not be successful and, and, uh, and, and put more consequences potentially or, or to save, um, to protect the force. You know, you're always dealing with this seesaw effect. So just to sort of uh, frame that, because one of the things I was asked to do early on in my career was write sort of an opposing paper to ORM or CRM, mm. basically the idea of where it starts to fail. And one of the things that I want to make clear to the listeners is when anyone is putting a numeric value on the likelihood of a risk, the number of assumptions built into that are significant. And the danger of that is that you can create overconfidence and complacency. Like we've accounted for that. Yeah. Here's the thing in war, you have not accounted for that, right? And what you need to do is stay what they call vigilant to the idea that uncertainties will always arise. There's also a thing going back to epistemology, which is the conceptual framework you're operating under is different in each context. Here's what I mean by that. So in, when you were at war, you controlled the airspace. There was a number of things that you controlled for. But let's take your same example and go to Nazi-occupied France for the resistance, right? They didn't control anything. The assumption wasn't that they were going to come home. The assumption was they were going to die, right? The assumption was, hey, this is all ending poorly. In a trauma unit, right, what they often say is if you go to a trauma unit, a tier one hospital right now, level one trauma unit, the reason you're going to a trauma unit isn't because you're living. It's because you're dying. The assumption is if you're showing up in that room, you're dying. What they're trying to do is prevent that. But the assumption is if you show up in their house, you're dying. Right. And what they're trying to do is stop that process. And so when you conceptualize risk, you really do have to think about Hey, what's our what's our the framework? What's the context here? Because it will matter. the The problem set, the assumptions, the variables, the urgency, the threats, all matter. Yeah, all great points. I think what I learned, I don't know what age I was or where I was, you know, in the in the teams at the time that someone first handed me this, that this first structure of an idea of managing risk. And but I remember looking at the paper and I was like, this is stupid. Do I have to think about all these things and write all these things down and put a number to them? But here's I, I think you're totally right, Preston. Like the numeric values didn't matter as much to me. Here's what I did learn. Here's here's, here's what was effective to me every single time we did that process is principle three and principle four of this conversation, which we're going to get to in a minute here, which are yeah. we cannot fix what we cannot talk about. And we That's cannot right. talk about what we cannot see. And you know what that uh, conceptualizing and writing down the likelihoods and the severities made me think about the problem in a more linear phased approach when I went to do something, anything. Here's the one thing I would just share with you, right, is that oftentimes when we talk to teams that are in networks, what we call liquid networks that are operating in partnership with different teams is 
you can't just anymore solve your problem. You have to solve the problem above you and below you. You can't just solve your own. And so this manifests in risk because when people talk about mitigating risks, too often they're trading risks. So I'll give you an example in the military. If you go to the training command and say, hey, on the shooting range, there's been too many incidents. You have to reduce the incidents. The easiest way to do that is constrain who can go on the range. What that means is is that the average soldier or sailor is getting less time on the range, so they're less prepared for combat. But that doesn't show up in the statistics for the range. It shows up in the statistics for combat. So you're trading one risk for another. You're not mitigating at all. You're pushing it downstream. And so you always have to be careful whenever you're mitigating risk that you are, in fact, mitigating it and not just trading it up or trading it down. And too often in bureaucracies, that's really what happens. Probably uh, the key point to this conversation, and I appreciate you sharing. I wouldn't even remembered to mention that, and it reminded me to uh, – this is a story I tell all the time, but I'm not going to say the person's name, but an admiral in the Navy who was one of my bosses, he one of my favorite guys ever. And I remember sitting down, I was very junior, I remember sitting down in a meeting with him one time, and he said, Coleman, remember, you have enough cognitive bandwidth and enough, you know, just human ability, and this is my expectation for you, this is him talking, that you lead and operate and team and everything thinking two levels above you and two levels below you all the time. And what he was essentially yeah. saying was, don't just solve your problem, solve all the other problems around you simultaneously or else you're not helping me. The other thing we should just go back and talk about real quick is that, you know, I go into the etymology of where the word risk comes from. But one of the just the most important things about this conversation is that in the in the 1600s, the word adventure was taken out of the definition. Why does that matter? It matters because adventure literally means to dare. That's what it, it means to dare. And whenever we're interacting with uncertainty or risk from a human factor's point of view, there has to be a level of daring, a level of courage, right? A level of of, of intentionally interacting with that which we don't know, right? We cannot predict. I just don't know. And this is a really interesting thing because daring then becomes something which is needs to be calibrated. We've both worked on teams where people are too daring, and that's just dangerous, and people who are too cautious, and that's also too dangerous. And so calibrating for your own team what the appropriate level of daring is really matters, and especially in COVID, because we're seeing both professional uncertainty and personal uncertainty. And so people's appetite for daring is kind of getting maxed out because in some cases for medical workers, showing up to work is daring. Forget about everything else, just literally showing up. Um, and so you have to be able to sit them down and go, okay, let's talk about the complexity, the, the whole pie, you know, the whole pie here. Yeah. Do you, do you want to go any deeper on uh, the etymology of risk. Do you think that's useful? I don't think it is. I think for those that are into it, um, read the paper. Um, it's there. Uh, I could bore people to tears um, with looking at the etymology because I love it so much. Um, but it's it has to do with the emergence, and I'm writing about this now, when you think about special, what we call special forces teams, now called special operations teams, but early on in the 1950s with the creation of the SAS and SF, and then later with SWAT teams and paramedic teams and trauma teams, all of these are built on the idea that bureaucracies needed small, agile teams that could now dare in the face of these emergent complex problems. But most of the emergency teams that you think about, like 9-11, like the, the numbers 9-11 or 999 or 000, depending on what country you're in, 
these are all relatively new. These are within our lifetime, Coleman, right? 1973 is when 9-11, the, the, you know, the Emergency Services Act, EMS, existed. Prior to that, it didn't exist. The number so, 911 didn't exist. Yeah, yeah, didn't exist. And so we all think this has always been here. It's in our lifetime these teams have existed. Well, let's, let's move then into what everyone will see, and they'll obviously be listed in the show notes and they're listed in the paper, um, but the 10 principles, the 10 Mission Critical Team Institute principles for navigating uncertainty, starting with number one, where you look is where you go. Yeah, and that's just literally by starting your objectives. It sounds really basic, but if you're, think, if you're anxious about a, an, an event or an action you're going to take, Take a hot second and write down, what's our goal? Like, what's a win? Because that can clarify what, what is important and what's not important. And it's a simple act, but it really matters. For anybody who's done free fall and not in tandem, but flown their own parachute or gone on a, you know, high risk white water or even not even high risk white water rafting, you, you know that where you look is where you go. And particularly... And, and I'm not the most experienced free faller that will be listening to this. So, you know, anybody who is, wants to, I'm sure there's many people happy to correct me at any point in time. But um, I remember the, the instructor saying that when I was first learning to free fall. It's like where you look is where you go. And so make sure your eyes are pointed in the right direction. I'm like, these guys think we're stupid. Like, of course I know that I look. And you find out real fast when you're, when you're flying a canopy into the drop zone that you better be looking where you want to go because wh where your eyes are is exactly where your body's going to end up. Yeah, that's right. The, the second thing is fast is different than slow. And this we could literally do a podcast on this because the Wharton Neuroscience Initiative has been sort of teaching me on the idea of whether your brain is two different systems, fast and slow, or whether it's one system that has gears. And, and real quickly, I actually don't know the answer, and it's not germane, but just know this: what we're talking about right now is incredibly complicated um, and that we're summarizing some really brief points. But the point is, is that there's urgency and there's complexity. And you have to understand that, that the bottom line here is, do you know how long 60 seconds is? That's the bottom line here. And so each of you should sort of ask yourself, well, how long is 60 seconds? And you're like, well, that's a stupid question. It's a minute. Nope. Take a think about it. If you're a mom that's just given birth, ask her how long 60 seconds is. If you've ever been in a boxing round doing com like or a wrestler, you know, Coleman, 60 seconds can either be really fast or a year and a half of your life. Ask a basketball player in overtime how long 60 seconds is. Now, a lot of stuff gets done in 60 seconds. And then, but if you also are getting ready to ask your spouse to marry you, no. <laughs> 60 seconds is not enough time. It's just not. Like, it goes too quick. Yeah. I need a lot more time to process this. Well, you and I definitely need uh, a lot more time. Yeah, that's right. Um, I don't, I don't want to leave principle number two yet, though. Uh, okay. Fast is different than slow because I, I want you, because of how close we are to the Wharton Neuroscience Initiative and how much we get to hear them speak about this topic and other colleagues of ours, If, if for the audience, you just... For those who are familiar with Kahneman and Tversky's Nobel Prize winning work, and of course the book Thinking Fast and Slow, or Recognition Prime Decision Making, uh, book Sources of Power by author Gary Klein, and, and all the work done in this space, um, as you know, Preston, as a lot of our teammates at Wharton Neuroscience have said, sometimes system one and system two thinking, intuitive versus more rational thinking in Kahneman's language gets taken out of context. Can you just share about the bowling ball 
in the in the net analogy. Yeah. So one thing I would encourage everybody to do, Wharton Neuroscience Initiative, um, Zab Johnson, Dr. Zab Johnson and Michael Platt are doing a, uh, a podcast. And if you just go to Wharton Neuroscience Initiative, you can find it. It's really interesting and worth listening to. Um, the, the example that I use, and no one's corrected me yet, so I'm going to keep using it, is that um, Dr. Zab Johnson pointed out to me that your brain is never binary. It's never doing one thing. It's always doing multiple things. And so a better way to think about system one and system two is this, at least for me. Imagine there's a room that you're in, and imagine that you cast a net, like a physical cargo net, from one wall to the other wall, um, you know? And imagine that you put a bowling ball in that net. This is a typical example used to describe centers of gravity or um, uh, how gravity works around planets. That net represents your neural network, okay? How your brain, your electrical chemical system of your brain. And it, the bowling ball represents you. So for example, if I took a scalpel and opened you up, Coleman, I could find your heart and your liver and your brain, but I couldn't find Coleman, right? Coleman isn't a place. It's a, it's a connection of blood flow and chemicals and electricity that sits somewhere in your brain and your body. And so, so imagine that this bowling ball is, is Coleman, right? It's the light and the representation of consciousness that is Coleman. On the left wall is system one, which is your sort of like fast, um, sort of limbic system, fight, flight, freeze. And on the set, on the right wall is your prefrontal cortex, your system two, your sort of thoughtful, you know, uh, reflective consciousness. Well, your bowling ball is moving from one side to the other, but the net is always activated. The whole net is always activated, but it's more of where's the center of effort, right? And so if your bowling ball is way down to this, uh, like s level one or s system one, it's not that system two isn't activated. It's just less blood flow and chemical activity, but it's still there. But here's the most important point, I think. With the elite teams, it's not that you build system one capacity or build system two capacity. It's how fast the bowling ball can go back and forth. What's what some coaches call the elevator effect. How do you get to 30,000 feet and then six inches back to 30,000 feet? It's the same concept, which is how do you train yourself and your team to move the bowling ball back and forth? Yep. And let's take let's take a a, a soldier in in a gunfight yep. and and a hockey player. Yep. Right. It, the a hockey shift five guys come onto the ice, they might be on the ice for 90 seconds or two minutes, plus or minus or whatever. In that amount of time at skating speed, risk to bodily injury of having your head taken off by a huge defenseman, puck speed, urgency of play, trying to score, right? Moving the puck, communicating with your eyes and all these different things. And, and this is where, and so the same thing in a gunfight, right? Preston? So movement in coordination with your teammates, bullets flying, trying to communicate or not communicate on the radio. You're obviously mostly communicating with, but it, we are fully, and I'm going to make a, another uh, athletic analogy here in a second. My experience in life has been like most of the, that scenario that's temporarily constrained, it's under 300 seconds or less. We are way further into the system one side than we are in the system two side. This is why I always hate it when folks in the media about an athlete who does something extraordinary on the court or on the ice or on the field, they say the person rose to the, the occasion. Like the person didn't rise to the occasion. They sunk to their level of training. They, system one, moved down to whatever level they had 
bent themselves, to use a friend of mine, Andy Stump's terminology, to how many times they had bent themselves enough to, again, in Coleman's terms, not in neuroscience terms, expand the ability to execute complex tasks in the system one range, or said more simply, like intuitively or on command. It's true, Coleman. And what I would I would also say to that is that from what I've studied, everything you're saying is right. And one additional thing, which is that that hockey player is also pinging very rapidly to system two to get that 30,000 view of the whole yes. strategy, right? They, they're they conscious of the context and the environment and the situation that they're operating within. So you're right. They're fully dependent on that prior training. They're automated and all those things. And they're pinging every once in a while to look you know, at the, at the overhead monitor of the view to see what's happening. Yeah. And this is later in the principles, but this is why, you know, I don't know, maybe it's just Coleman's pet peeve about stuff. Why I always beat the drum on effective actor after action reviews as a group, when things have slowed down after the fact, right. And my, in my own experience, the biggest reason why is because in a under 300 seconds or less, heavily focused system one environment where I've been able to execute execute these complex tasks. I can't code the system two portion of that, just speaking for myself. I cannot effectively code the strategy, the conceptual nature, the map of meaning, for lack of a better term, onto that experience if during a stable time, the whole team isn't together, like rebuilding the picture and contextualizing what just happened. That's right. And what's interesting, right, is that iteratively over and over again, you'll then start to support yourself and your teammates in real time being able to build that. So like that that sort of view, that worldview in that moment. So because you've done that AAR a number of times, you start to build an appreciation of where the other pieces of the puzzle are moving through time and space. To do what you mentioned earlier, which is not yep. only solve my problem, but solve everybody yep. else's problem too. That's right. And that's right. Because you know that famous quote, right? You don't go where the you don't go where the puck is, you go where the puck is gonna be. But you, you have a whole bunch of people involved in that. And so the only way you're gonna be able to anticipate that is by having what you're talking about, these iterative discussions about, well, what would you have done or tear, sharing time together. And this problem becomes acute right now because when we're seeing the emergence of what we call tactical swarms, the idea of these teams that rush together to solve a problem that don't have a history of cohesion and trust and shared personal experiences. This is the thing that's lacking. It's this, I don't actually know what Coleman's going to do because I haven't worked with him a bunch. And this is what sort of the edge of things we're working on now is how to improve that. Let's go to principle number three. We cannot fix what we cannot talk about. We um we were just in a conversation with some professional sports coaches um, yesterday, and this is one of the conversations we had, which is if you're a player that just becomes a coach or you're a coach that moves from the minor leagues to the major leagues, you have expertise. There's no question. Otherwise, you wouldn't take the job. The problem is do you have the language in which to describe that expertise? And for a lot of experts, this is the thing that's lacking. It's not that they don't know how to ride the bike. It's they don't know how to explain riding the bike to someone else, what we call the tacit knowledge transfer problem. And so the two things that I would encourage everybody to do is one, whenever you're faced with um, an uncertain environment where you know that you know what to do, but you can't talk about it, the two questions you should ask yourself is, 
am I role modeling a behavior, personally role modeling behavior right now that I would want my subordinates to follow? Because people don't listen, they watch. So the first thing you can do is actually do the thing you want people to do, and they, like ducklings, will follow, right? Don't say one thing and do another. You just confuse everybody. That's a really hard discipline, and that's that's very hard to do. The second thing to do is that, just as you were saying with after-action reviews, is that be in a constant, what we call collaborative inquiry discussion with your teammates. Just finding different words to describe and articulate those simple things that you see every day. Why do you hold your rifle or your stick or your bat that way? Why do you lead with your left foot or your right foot? Why do you hold your gear that way? Just articulate it for someone else in a way they can understand it. Just get in the habit of talking about the really basic things you do just doing that over and over again will build the capacity within you to articulate your expertise. Yeah, this, um, you know, principle four of what we cannot talk about, what we cannot see reminds me of uh, Nobel Prize winning, I guess, physicist Richard Feynman, who who said yeah. at one time, knowing the name of a thing is not the same yeah. as knowing the thing. That's right. And if you want to know if you know the thing, teach it to a sixth grader. Yeah. No matter That's how right. complicated your thing is which reminded me of two other references that I just find interesting on this topic of we cannot talk about what we cannot see is in that same conversation, actually two weeks ago with those same professional athletic coaches, I asked the head of strength and conditioning of two separate professional athletic teams um, in, a, in a small group conversation. If, if I were to take you out of one sport and put you into another sport and give you five minutes to assess or, or assess each player for only, you know, five minutes, what one physical, you know, assessment mechanism would you use to, to just get a sense of uh, the player's, you know, physical ability? And he said movement quality. And I immediately thought of John McPhee's book, A Sense of Where You Are, about Bill Bradley, because where that title comes from is when John McPhee was interviewing Bill Bradley for the book, Bill Bradley told him, it, the question was around this idea of, how do you know a great player or something like that? I don't have the exact section in the book in front of me, but um, Bill Bradley said something about a great player has a sense of where they are in space. And it, it points back to this idea of really understanding from a perspective of situational awareness where we are and where the team is. Yeah. One of the things that I would just amplify what you just said, because it's so important, we used to talk about, I've been working with teams for 30 years, Goldman. And, and one of the things that we would say with folks like yourself or others that do this work is that if you took any kind of team, doesn't matter to me, sports team, military team, right? And you put them in a field, put 10 teams in a field, and you said, hey, Preston, which teams are doing well and which teams aren't? I can tell you from 10 yards away. I can tell you right away. And I can tell you has to do with fluidity, just what you were talking about. The proximity they are to each other, teams that work well together are physically in close proximity. Teams that aren't, aren't. That you can see it right away. And that teams that are doing well are moving with a kind of fluidity together that is that is lovely to watch. And the ones that aren't, it's clunky and awkward and sort of like you cringe when you watch. You can see that from 10 yards away. So I want to amplify what you're saying. It's absolutely true. I'm here for the folks who obviously aren't seeing the video. I'm here squirming in my chair because I can't believe like, and maybe it's just birds of a feather flock together and this isn't coincidental, but two things happened to me in the last two days that are exactly on this topic, Preston, and I wasn't even paying attention to why um, 
you know, and, and those, uh, for the folks who heard episode five, you would have heard this portion of my and Jimmy's conversation, which is, I was saying to Jimmy Hatch how my memory of the very best people and the very best teams, and as a wrestler, maybe no one should be surprised at my next statement here, is that I wanted to be physically close to the people. And it was just something that I didn't really think about, you know, back then, back then being when I was still on teams that were like that. Um, and then the other thing that I experienced on the last, which was just yesterday, was I was rereading Daniel Coyle's book, The Culture Code. And one of the very first things he writes about in The Culture Code is his observation after following these eight to 10 different types of teams for four years before he wrote the book, is that their physical proximity matters. Yeah. It matters a great deal. And one of the real concerns, and I've been on, obviously, like many people, these Zoom calls and these these podcasts, one of the real concerns I have about this new normal is it's very hard to build fluidity in, in uh, virtual environments. So because I'm not physically, I'm still a social mammal. I still need to, like, no kidding, feel you, smell you, be near you to understand whether or not I can deeply trust you. And that's something you actually can't achieve. I don't think you can achieve. There's a lot of things you can achieve. There's efficiencies you can gain virtually. But that's one of the things I think we lose. Yeah, and again, for the, for the general listener who's thinking, well, I'm on a distributed team, but we work great. Remember... Mission critical teams, four to 12 agents, indigenously trained, uh, volatile, ambiguous, complex, adaptive problem sets, making the core function of their decision in 300 seconds or less. Those teams, physical proximity matters. Yeah. The the point that you were getting at with situational awareness, one of my huge pet peeves, and, and I, I need to actually get over it, is that if I'm in a, in a room of experts, so to speak, and we're evaluating the performance of a player or an operator, right, and they're asking me about the educational side of things about how to improve their ability, and somebody says, oh, well, they just have poor judgment. I literally have a, I want to, I get nauseous. I get, I'm like, that is such a reductionist piece of garbage because first of all you don't even know what you mean by that a and it's just a throwaway comment to show that you're like uh it's about judgment well what do you mean like judging what yeah by in, in how much time against what based on what experience like the number of variables that go into people's ability to navigate or zig or zag it's so many things it's like me saying to somebody well they, you know uh they had the wrong upbringing what does that mean like against what like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And so when I say we cannot talk about what we cannot see, there's all of us have blind spots. But the truth is, is that when I go to see a team for the first time, let's pick on sports. There's no no mystery that I don't know anything about sports um, is that when I'm working with like a baseball uh, batting coach, which I find fascinating or pitching coach, a big part of what I have to do is get them to explain to me what I'm seeing. Because I don't know what I'm seeing. To me, it's just a guy throwing a ball. And I'll give you a great example of this. I was down with the Pittsburgh Pirates who were graceful enough to bring me down to their spring training. And their batting coach had put me in the batting cage against a major league pitcher. Now, remember, Preston, last time he had held a bat when he was 12 years old and he wasn't good then. So now being in a on a mat, like a, you know, right there, right in the batting box with a pitcher about to lob very kindly lob a ball to me. What I didn't know is that I'm trying to figure out like, okay, what am I supposed to do? And what he said to me is, Preston, don't think about the ball or the bat. Think about the pitcher. When the pitcher goes back, you go back. 
and we're going to practice. When the pitcher goes forward, you go forward. And then we got into this kind of rhythm or this dance. And then when he threw it, I hit the ball. No one had ever explained that to me before because I couldn't see it. And because I didn't know it, I couldn't see it. But once I could see it, everything made sense. And that's what I'm talking about. It's that interrogation of the experience and the ability of that master coach to be able to explain to me the thing I couldn't see. That's what great leaders do. That's what great coaches do. Yep. Yep. I totally agree. And using the, you know, back to the jumping out of an airplane free fall examples for the, for the general audience or the non-general audience, doesn't matter, is uh, my experience happened exactly the way my instructors told me. I said, the first time you jump I have an airplane and I'm not holding on to you. Um, the only thing you're going to see is your altimeter. You will not see your hands. You will not see your other, you will not see your ripcord until I tell you to pull it or until you hit, you know, uh, pull altitude. And then it's going to be a viper strike. You're going to strike at the ripcord like a viper striking at another, you know, small animal in the savannah. And that's exactly what happened. He said, but over time, as you build up this capacity for, uh, understanding the mechanics of the jump, you're going to see more things. And um, he was exactly right. Yeah. But it's also in that environment, it's also about you owning the clock because little by little, you get to own the whole 60 seconds rather than just the one second. That's right. That's right. Let's go to principle number five. We must spend more time on building our strengths than trying to fix our weaknesses. Yeah, this is research that's been clearly done. You've heard me talk about it before. But one of the things in the communities that we work with is that one of their strengths is that they are hyper-attentive to details and to feedback and improving themselves. A strength taken too far is a weakness. So what ends up happening is you have these teams at the most elite levels that I, that can be beaten on all day long. I can walk into these teams like your teams and I could say, you guys suck and here's why. And they'll just write it down and take it in. But if I take 30 seconds to talk about why they're awesome, we could measure their heart rates going up. They will be deeply uncomfortable. They do. They are not comfortable talking about what they do well at. And, and, and what that turns out to be is that they also aren't good, so good at being able to tell other people what they're good at giving compliments. And this is one of our greatest weaknesses in elite teams and mission critical teams. We have got to get better because yes, it's important to know what wrong looks like, but it's actually more important to know what right looks like because where we know that we can improve our strengths exceptionally more, almost algorithmically more than we can improve our weaknesses. So for me, um, well, let's pick you, right? We can we can take a, a skill that you have in high performance and athletics, and we can increase that even now much more. But increasing your ability to be a ballet um, dancer is probably going to be limited, Coleman. Like we, we should can, test that. Yeah, we could do it all day long, but the truth is we could spend a lot of wasted hours trying to make you that or a great singer or a great opera singer. And, and it doesn't matter how much heart you have, right? It's, it's going to be diminishing returns. So if we're going to invest our time and effort, let's invest our time and effort what would we actually know you can be great at. But to do that, we have to be able to articulate what you're great at, be able to show it to you, and be able to confirm it. Um, the easiest way for me to make mission-critical teams uncomfortable is to praise them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a weird tension. We're not going to go down this rabbit hole, but there's there's a lot to that in the training environment too, as it pertains to uh, regression to the mean and and what we think like yelling and berating. Yeah. It's not just about yelling, but the over focus on weaknesses 
Oh. We often congratulate ourselves on that because we're fixing stuff. Yeah. And we don't realize that a lot of things actually fix themselves because of regression to the mean when we're focused on the strengths. Because as we amplify our strengths, the weaknesses tend to get fixed. We just, as instructors, I'm putting myself back in instructor role before I knew any of this stuff. We we over-index on ourselves as instructors that our over-focus on the weaknesses is we're fixing stuff. And we're really not fixing stuff. Stuff is lots of times, not always, but lots of times fixing itself. But we credit ourselves with the fact that we beat somebody over the head because of their weaknesses with the fix. Well, you know, Joe, Dr. Joe Cable at the Wharton Neuroscience Initiative, one of the things he recently taught me, which I didn't know, which I thought was fascinating, is your brain is actually built to learn through error. And mm. here's why, is that if you... If you make uh, if you do something well, it doesn't require change, so your brain doesn't have to trigger anything. It's like just keep doing that. But if yep. you make a mistake, your brain actually has to trigger you that change is required. So we're actually oriented towards paying attention to errors and not oriented towards paying attention to successes. We don't get a chemical hit when we succeed as much as when we fail because that's our brain saying, "Hey, you have to adapt," and that that manifests with us overly spending too much time focusing on errors rather than on successes. Yeah. Yeah. Principle number six, we need a team. Yeah. So this is really interesting. Um, there are, there are some turn, there are some things Coleman that it's, as we know from our own lives, that we're better off solving just ourselves. We don't need a team. It's, it's exhausting to coordinate people. But there are some problem sets, trauma resuscitation being one, where you actually need a team of people to do it well. But once you get more than three people in a room, there are certain variables that then come into play. And as our friend, the Reverend Sue Phillips talks about, it's this idea of belonging, becoming, and in service. Belonging means if we're going to be on a team and it's going to be successful, we have to feel like we belong on the team. And this really matters. We cannot understate this. We all have that 12-year-old at the dance feeling within us, right? Like, I just feel like I don't belong or I do belong. It makes all the difference. Becoming is we all need to feel like this is actually moving us forward. All of us hate on being on teams where we're like, this is making me dumber. Being in this room is making me dumber. I hate it. But we love being on rooms where we're challenged. Where we're, I love being at Wharton because everybody in that building is smarter than me, right? And that's one of the reasons I love being there at Penn as well is because I'm constantly surrounded by people that just by talking are making me smarter, right? Because I got to keep up. And the last one is the people, certainly on mission critical teams, not everyone, feel like they have to be in service to something greater than themselves. And if th that doesn't exist, you won't keep their attention. And this is often what happens to people towards the later of their career is they stop feeling like that connection with something greater than themselves. They feel like they're trapped into making donuts. And that's where a leader will remind people, hey, what we're doing here, even though it seems in the moment stupid, is contributing to X. This is one of the things that I think the Joint Special Operations Command does really well, which is, you know, once a quarter or once a month, depending on operations, they literally bring everybody together, including the accountants. And they say, here's the mission. We're going to go back through it. And let me literally point at everybody in the room who contributed to the success. The guys in mobility that made sure that the vehicles were ready, it was because you guys were ready that we were able to deploy in that moment. So we couldn't have done it without you guys. Thank you. Here's a coin. That is genius to me. Yeah. Dan Coyle, again, I'll, I'll put Dan's book, The Culture Code, in the show notes as well. 
Uh, Dan talks about this in this exact topic in his book as well. And the other thing I just want to mention on principle number six, we have an action with every principle here, and it's have you identified the members of your team? Obvious yes or no answer, or maybe not obvious. And do you know your team's strengths and weaknesses? And I was just, as people have heard in episode five, I was just talking to Jimmy about this as well. And when I think back to the the, the greatest teams and, and troops that I was associated with, the, the truth now, Preston, is I can tell you in general what people's strengths and weaknesses were. But as Jimmy and I were reflecting on, never once was some of the guys that I knew the best and respected the most and still love and talk to today, did I ever sit down with them for two hours uninterrupted and have a real no shit conversation about like, Preston, what, like, what do you think your real strengths are? What do you think your real weaknesses are? No, what we normally do in those teams is we go through these training things and then we get assigned to different units, just like happens in professional athletic teams. And then we, we, we play or operate with these people for five, six, seven, ten, sometimes years or more. And we develop these ideas in our mind based on events that happen or don't happen, what a person's strengths and weaknesses are. And, and we think we can, we can, we know what their desires are just by watching a set of behaviors. Well, a set of behaviors in any athletic team, troop, whatever, set of astronauts on the International Space Station are only one part of, of, of this idea of do we really know something about each other. And I think if we go through life, if we finish our careers and we die and we have all these life experiences with these amazing teams and we've never taken the time to sit down and say, like, what do you want, to, what, what do you want your headstone to say? What are your superpowers? One of the things that you taught me when we started the Institute was you sent me a user's guide. And yeah, I thought I'll put this, this in was, the show notes as well. I thought this was phenomenal because I was, I was like, what is this? And basically what Coleman did is he said, here's how to work with Coleman. Here's the stuff that I'm going to be great at. Here's the stuff you should not waste a lot of time trying to get out of me. It's not going to be worth your effort. And then after that, I did one and it was really self um it was self-informative because I had never actually had to sit and tell people, hey, here's the stuff where is useful with me and probably you're going to be wasting your time. So like one stupid, not stupid, what one small example is that Coleman's major at the Naval Academy was math. Like you would never know that, right? But the thing is, is that my, like one of my key weaknesses is math. Don't get me involved in a conversation that involves a lot of digits because it's every, I'll just stare at you, right? And I'll go vacant, and that's not useful in a business. And so that's one of those examples where there are things I bring to the relationship, but that's not one of them. And we can clearly just say, dude, I'll just, just you do it and I'll sort, I'll just agree or I'll ask dumb questions. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Principle number seven, we must moderate our consumption of information. This is a uh, really important right now. And so I want everyone to think back on their life and think about how many emails they got 10 years ago and how many emails they're getting now. And the, and the answer for everyone is you're getting more, right? So if we chart that, right, that, that number will keep increasing at some point. And for some of us, this has already reached this. You will get to a point where there's not enough in hours in the day if you want to stay married and have children and not be arrested and get some sleep where you can return all the emails. So what's happening, just like we talked before about trading risk, trading uncertainties, you're also trading time. And so you have to decide what information, texts, audios, podcasts, emails, conversations, phone calls, what amount of information is useful 
to absorb in any one day and what actually starts to diminish other aspects of your life. And no one can make this for you. No one in in the government is suddenly going to go, Preston's getting too many emails. We need to dial them back. It will never happen. So what that's left with is that each of us have to make a personal choice about how much data we are consuming every day in the same way that modern humans have had to make decisions about how much food we consume, how much alcohol, how much drugs we consume. Because our brains will be like, I would like more, please. If you sit in front of a buffet, Preston's brain will be like, we should eat all that because we don't know when we'll eat again. That's what my brain will literally do. And I have to be like, brain, we're going to eat in about three hours. But what if something happens? Has it happened in the last 50 years? A few times, but not really. So same thing with information. Yeah. This makes me, because of the food analogy, Preston, it makes me think of just, you know, one little guide that I try to use for myself with food, drink, um, information is, is it for fun or is it for fuel? Yep. And it's okay to have both. You have to choose for yourself how much you're going to have. I'll just give you my example when it comes to social media. My timer on my phone for social media stuff, Instagram, LinkedIn, whatever, is 15 minutes. And to me, that's for fun. Even though, yes, we post business stuff on there. We have meaningful conversations with people, but that's for fun. Fuel is information. Doing something for fuel is... is information or in the case of nutrition and performance, food and drink, but in case of information, is it, is it teaching me something, helping me move a project further along in that category of productivity? But my guide generally is, is it for fun or is it for fuel? Yeah. And I, and you know, I want to say one more thing about fun because sometimes people uh, dismiss this. So one of my secret sort of loves is audiobooks of science fiction. And the reason for that is that my brain, like a lot of people's brain, moves at about 2 million miles an hour every second. And I actually need a mechanism to, like, get my brain to shift into stupid, right? Like, just to do nothing, to absorb useless nothing, just to give, let the dust settle. And I found that for me, it's restorative to engage in something like science fiction for a brief amount of time in order just to reset my brain. Yeah, the... um... I wonder if every podcast has a quirk where the podcast host of the people on it lie to their listeners because I'm looking at the clock and I'm thinking this might be our quirk. I keep saying we're going to keep them below 45 minutes and we never do. <laughs> so just for the record, I'm going to keep saying 45 minutes and maybe we never will. But um, yeah. there's three more principles we want to talk about here and then we'll wrap up. And, and principle eight is it's not one rabbit hole for me. It's, it's probably 5,000 rabbit holes, but um, a topic I think has become incredibly important to me and and I th- and I just believe is incredibly important is your body keeps the score. Yeah, and this really was, Coleman, this, this deserves its own podcast and own paper, which you're going to need to write because I can't. But it, it's just really, it's really a, a, a placeholder to say all of this that we're talking about, risk, uncertainty, all exists within this fleshy shell of our body and our electrical chemical system or our brain. All of us have had a day with us ourselves or our spouses or our friends where we know that they're hungover, dehydrated, haven't eaten yet, whatever, and they are just a mess. And it doesn't matter what their mental frameworks are, right? They're hungry, right? Their blood sugar is low, and so they're annoying. 
So you give them a Snickers bar like that commercial, and all of a sudden they're like, oh, okay, they're good. The body keeps the score. No one gets exemptions from that. And then you can go way down the, the rabbit hole, which we should, into human performance, which I know you're an expert in. And so, and I'm saying that not as a throwaway, but as a truth. It's too deep to really cover other than you ignore it at your peril. Hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. Yeah. One of my buddies used to say, Coleman, you're halfway to halt. Like, check your system. <laughs> Hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. If you're halfway to halt, this shit's about to hit the fan. <laughs> Principle number nine, we must process the residue for those who have heard uh, the podcast on residue, but go ahead, Preston. Yeah, we've we've already covered down on this. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. The residue thing is this, but listen, you're going to have extreme experiences. And as a friend, I just talked to you said, reminded me, um, which we stated, which is you can sprint, you can splint your own sprained wrist, but you can't splint your own broken arm. You And that's me saying you have to process your experiences. You can't ignore them. And sometimes if the experience, good or bad, like even if it's like you won the Nobel, I, if, I, if I won some award, which is unlikely to happen, but if I did, I would probably call up Coleman and be like, Coleman, I'm not sure what's happening right now. He'd have to help me make meaning of that experience. So that's that's one example. Yeah, and we're going to, in the residue topic is embedded is this idea of a hot wash, a debrief, uh, after action review. Uh, M&Ms in the medical community. We're going to talk about those in a, in a separate conversation, but that'll be coming up in the next couple of weeks as well. And principle number 10, which is actually my favorite, I think, is establish your own principles. Yeah. So as you know, Coleman, we the Mission Critical Team Institute is based on our, our first principle, no kidding, our professional principles in our company is we don't know. <laughs> and we like literally start that way off by saying that it doesn't matter how long I've been studying this, whatever team you're on, is, is novel to me. I don't know it. And so for me to show up and go, oh yeah, you should like, you know, turn left faster would be a waste of everyone's time. And so what we do is we help you think about what is your lived experience? What are the things that are true for you? How do you articulate it? And then what are you going to do with that information? And so I would encourage everybody, both personally and with your team to start thinking about what are your guiding principles for navigating uncertainty? What are your truths? And it's so one of the reasons I said it's one of my favorite is I think it gives a set of permission to it gives permission to teams because obviously you and I enjoy, you know, the convenience of seeing so many. And I certainly have learned along the way that with the the amount of information out there and available to us, it's easy for me because I'll just use myself as an example. It's easy for me because my learning style is books is to go to Dan Coyle's book or something Adam Grant wrote or something Daniel Kahneman wrote or somebody else and say, oh, that's the answer. I'll use his or her principles. But but that's not the way to do it. The way to do it is build some sort of rubric in your mind about a generalized uh, way that your team addresses uncertainty around the objectives that you have and build your principles around that. Don't build them around the way a hockey team does it or the way astronauts do it or the way an academic does it. Um, Build them around what you do. Just make sure that my recommendation is ensure that your team is following the other principles uh, that we've laid out here, such as fast is different than slow. Well, starting with principle number one as a summary here, where you look is where you go. Principle number two, fast is different than slow. Number three, we cannot fix what we cannot talk about. Principle four, we cannot talk about what we cannot see. Number five, we must spend more time building on strengths and weaknesses. Six, we need a team. Number seven, moderate your consumption of information. Number eight, your body keeps the score. 
Number nine, we must process the residue. And number 10, establish your own principles. And so in closing, Preston, um, any we kind of structured this one, this conversation around what to actually do on Monday by following the principles. But any other thoughts you have on if we were closing this conversation and you were new to the discussion and you were leaving, um, you know, for a weekend, what would you do differently on Monday? Sure. And, and actually, just to, uh, to keep in the theme that we started with when we did these podcasts is to speak to the COVID, the new sort of COVID medical frontline folks. And just as a reminder, you are um, in a time of great uncertainty and you are coming from a position where you feel often that you need to be certain. You need to know what the treatment is and what everything else is. And this is just a reminder that you're experiencing uncertainty both professionally as we're figuring out what COVID is and also personally as you're navigating your lived experience of going into a dangerous environment and potentially returning home as a threat to your families. And I think part of this is engaging in a level of humility that maybe you haven't previously done and 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 an authentic engagement with the people around you because we are more than I, right? And together, you and your team can navigate and make meaning of this lived experience much faster than you can do independently. But you have to start with the premise that you're not the only one that doesn't know, right? Everyone, especially in high-performance teams, you're like, I must be the only one on the team not knowing what's going on. Leadership about recognizing that everybody feels that way. And if you can be vulnerable and humble enough to sort of start getting ones and twos to go, hey, I would really love a partner or a team to help me make meaning of this experience, you're going to be more sustainable and survivable. Because as you know, Coleman, one of our big goals is not just to reduce the, the, the curve of COVID, but reduce the curve of future suicides for medical workers. And we have to do that now by getting them to start thinking about intentionally navigating uncertainty based on these principles. Which we can all help ourselves with. Um, you know, again, on theme of this conversation is that in highly uncertain times, when we're on the quote unquote front lines of something that's really stretching us individually in the team. If you can make the time, if you have the time, uh, again, the one regret I have about some of the great teams I was on is the truth is, is I didn't know a lot about those people as much as I could have known. And it's those very people are going to help us not only through the uncertainty, but after the uncertainty subsides. And so if I was doing something different on Monday, you can use our template for user manual, which again, we'll put in the show notes, but I would take the time to learn a little bit more than just the surface information about my teammates, because that's going to not only improve your personal relationship with your teammates, but it's going to actually improve the way your team works operationally, how you um, how you work through problems, as Preston says, is a liquid network. Any other comments before we close? No, sir. Again, Preston, thanks for doing this. Again, you can find everything that we referenced in the show notes. Thanks for listening and everybody have a great week or, or a great weekend. Thanks for listening to the TeamCast. Thank you.